Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 1, The Ouroboros. You know, when I started my business, you know, it was hard. It's hard to have a business. It's hard to have a client-focused business. It takes time, um, and it takes a lot of self-growth. So at the beginning, I was looking for a lot of guidance, and I hired um, lots of different coaches. And, you know, I was, I was sort of fed that message of, like, there's three industries. There's, what is it, money and relationships and health. In 2012, just weeks after I got my first job in marketing, I discovered internet business. I was, at the time, recovering from an eating disorder, orthorexia and exercise addiction, which was eventually diagnosed as anorexia. I had left graduate school to recover, spending a few years in retail until I realized that I'd need a better salary if I wanted to move out of my mother's house and start my own life. It was a time of change and growth and discovery. I was vulnerable and impressionable, and I was desperately searching for answers. I was also immediately aware of the fact that while my salaried marketing job was a coup, it was also not forever. And that was when I listened to my first podcast about internet business. I started to hear the message everywhere. There's an entire world full of people who were frustrated with the rat race or inequality in the workplace, or lack of creativity, or trust, or growth from their employers. There was an entire world of people who were living their hashtag best lives, and who wanted to help and inspire others to live their hashtag best lives too. All it took was one big idea, one big break, one unique, impactful, and undeniable brand, and I could be free. Free to finally build a life for myself without the stress of a nine to five job and the demands of an overpaid CEO and the fear that my life was meaningless. But I'd need a brand. And to build a brand, I'd need a business. And to build that business, all I'd need was my body. Like me, you may have been dieting your whole life. You may have been dieting for so long, you don't even know what life looks like when you aren't restricting food groups or counting calories. You may still believe that calories in, calories out is a legitimate mantra by which to live your life. You may still be bought into the idea that your calorie or macro counting isn't a diet, it's a lifestyle. Like me, you've probably been at war with food and your body for so long that you just assume it's normal to feel conflicted about what you put in your mouth or to feel like you need to atone for eating. It's just a part of the culture. It's just something everyone does. But, and I'm either about to blow your mind or else just say the thing you know but you've been trying to deny, dieting is not normal. It's average, but it's not normal. It's not a genetic predisposition. It's not a thing that humans have always done. Children are dieting younger and younger. There are statistics about children, mostly girls, as young as 
five years old who are actively dieting. It's not because they want to or because, like play, it's part of the human developmental experience. It's not, even though it's been normalized for so long that it seems normal. Children are dieting because they see it modeled by the adults in their lives, and the adults in their lives are dieting because it's been pushed in marketing for the last century at least, first in paper advertisements like magazines, later on TV and radio, and now, of course, in blog posts, Facebook ads, Instagram posts, Twitter DMs, you name it. But dieting isn't normal. Obsessive exercise isn't normal. And yet... Everyone I know is on a diet or talking about their next exercise program like it's the answer to all of life's problems. And a lot of people are choosing to get paid for that belief. And the reason they're making that choice? Well, they do get paid for it. So, you know, obviously I'm working with bodies, so that falls into health, right? So, um so then you look at, okay, well, what are the health challenges that people have? And the way it was framed for me was like, okay, you sell people on what they want and then you get them in and you do this like magical transformation with them. And, you know, you, you give them all the growth stuff that you have. Cause you know, most of us coaches are doing this, not necessarily because we want to see a bunch of skinny bodies walking around or whatever our, our thing is that we're coaching for, but because we really want people to grow and, and be happier and healthier people. Um, and that, that didn't work for me because it felt like a bait and switch and I wasn't getting people who were, you know, people would come in and I'd be like, yeah, but there's all this growth stuff. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, but how do I get skinny? That's Suki Baxter, a radical body worker who started out in rolfing. Rolfing is an intense and systemized style of body work and people used to come to her looking for movement with the belief that movement would lead to weight loss, not the belief that movement would lead to better mobility. In this episode, I want to give you some context for this podcast about the world we're living in and the mindsets we're dealing with before we jump into the discussion of how this mindset, combined with systemic problems in today's working world, is influencing women identifying people specifically to drop out of corporate jobs and sell their body image. I don't want to assume that you're done with dieting or that you've embraced body positivity. I don't want to assume that you've left behind body positivity in pursuit of social justice and fat acceptance. In fact, I don't want to assume that you're anywhere on your journey other than where you are. And for most of us, that means you're mired in the messaging that our bodies and other bodies are not enough and too much. To that end, we're going to talk to several coaches like Suki who have faced the pervasive diet message about where it came from and why we need to overcome it. I, like many girls and women, have spent the majority of my life obsessing about my appearance, but specifically my weight. And, um, you know, it kept me from doing a shit ton of stuff. <laughs> it just kept me from living my life. And, um, you know, I got to this point where I started to have these thoughts that this can't be it. Like this idea of going on a diet or some sort of weight loss plan several times a year, like just, this can't be what I'm here for. This cannot possibly be life. <clears throat> but when I looked around and saw other women and I saw images and magazines, like it seemed like that was what it was like, that is what it was to be a woman, to always be efforting just to exist. Melissa Toller is a body image coach and a writer. 
After being a chronic dieter and even a competitive bodybuilder, which we'll hear more about in a later episode, she started asking, why? Why are women like this? Why do we want, in air quotes, to be dieting or exercising or efforting, as Melissa called it, all the time? It comes down to the message. It's everywhere. But where does the message come from? The obsession with weight loss and intense fat phobia is insidious, it's pervasive. We believe it's nor it feels normal because we see it everywhere all the time. And so you almost have to bombard yourself with the opposite to slowly get out of that way of thinking. And I think for most people, it's not a, an easy process. It's not a quick process. Yes, maybe there are some things that you read or heard that flip the switch on for you, but then there's still work that happens after that. And so where I am now is I'm completely um, anti-diet. I don't sell weight loss and I haven't for like a year or so. And I'm very clear about that. I, um, and you know, I'm still, you know, there's still a voice inside my head that is like, well, you know, maybe you should go to the gym five days this week. Maybe you should start lifting every day. Maybe you should. And so I hear that voice, um, but I don't act on it. Um, so I don't know if the voice ever goes away, but um, my voice is still there <laughs> telling me that you could be leaner. It's summertime. And these are things I don't believe. Like I write about like the whole, you don't have to be slim for summer. Like that you just don't. And, um, but there's still a little voice that says, Hey, well, you could probably be X amount of pounds slimmer, but I don't listen to that voice. And, and one thing I, I am not triggered by like weight loss ads or seeing other people that's so I can, I can read stuff and look at stuff and not, um, it doesn't take me over the edge. Um, but I, there is sometimes a little voice in my head, but I just, I acknowledge and then I move on. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause you know, I feel like I'm not triggered by the weight loss ads anymore, the diet ads. I, but at the same time, I think that's where the voice comes from, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, cause yep. like, cause yep. this wasn't an idea, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just a, an organic idea that came out of like being in a body, but I feel like there's so much of, we're so surrounded all day long by images, by messages, by people who are doing this diet or, you know, your company's hosting a fitness challenge or the magazines even in the rack as you're checking out, you know, and it, it becomes almost like, you become numb to it, but at the same time, subliminally in a way, you're kind of picking up all of these signals and just collecting them and holding them as information. And then, you know, it comes out as, oh, this was my idea. Yeah. Like I can stand in criticism of the ridiculous diet. Like I was at the nail salon yesterday and I saw an Us Weekly magazine where there were the stars give you their diet tips and the word diet was in large font and Oh, and I just read it and I was just like, this is all so ridiculous. And I just was like, I can't even make it through these 20 tips and I just put it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because they're all always exactly the same. Same nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many times we can read drink more water before it becomes <laughs> less interesting. Um, and also more useful because, yeah, drink water, yes. but that has nothing to do with your weight loss. But anyway... No. 
The other day, I saw a post on Facebook that led me to an article about the newest thing that women were feeling self-conscious about. Do you want to know what that thing was? Wait for it. Armpit vaginas. Yes, you heard that right. You do not need to adjust the volume on this podcast. Armpit vaginas. Apparently, when you wear a bra or a certain kind of top, it pushes up the skin around your chest and sometimes creates a little crease between your breast and the armpit that looks, if you zoom in on the photo, like a labia. And this was a new trend that women, especially stars on the red carpet, were worrying about and getting plastic surgery to correct. The reason that I mentioned this ridiculous thing is that I had never in my life ever considered that little pinch of skin near my armpit. And all of a sudden, after reading just the headline, I was thinking about it. Even though I don't give a damn what it looks like on my own body, I was just suddenly aware of it. This is how it happens. A mention. A photo. A tie-in with a celebrity. Suddenly you're seeing the message everywhere. Your body isn't good enough. You should be working harder to make it better, different, thinner, more tight, toned, and taut. The articles and blogs and Facebook and Instagram posts feel like an imperceptible avalanche. You see and hear a message everywhere until you are so buried that you don't even realize you've been suffocated. Why, all of a sudden, are people interested in the keto diet? Is it because keto is truly the best diet or just because everyone is writing about it? Why are people all of a sudden talking about bikini bodies come May? Is it because this is what we're supposed to be worried about in the run-up to summer? Or did someone manufacture summer as bikini body season so they'd have something to write an article about? It feels really inevitable once that little worm has been placed in your ear. You know, you should look this up. You should know how to fix this. You should be buying a supplement or an exercise program or a corset or makeup or something to fix the thing you just heard about. You need a coach, a doctor, a holistic nutritionist, a cookbook. All because the media that you've been surrounded with every single day is constantly looking for new things to write about so you'll keep coming to their website so the advertisers can sell to you so the writers can get paid. They need to keep confirming your beliefs that you are not enough and you are too much, and they will do that so long as they can find new things to keep you picking yourself apart, like armpit vaginas, while feeding you the promise that quick fixes abound. It also doesn't help that many of the writers and marketers who are helping you discover the next thing to worry about are a part of this culture and may also already have a pretty messed up relationship with food, fitness, and body image themselves. To that end, I talked to my friend Christy Harrison, who's a registered dietitian and a body image coach, as well as the host of the Food Psych podcast, because she knows all too well how this sort of thing gets perpetuated and spread. I started out as a journalist about 15, 14 years ago. Um, that was my first career. And, you know, journalism has gone through some real upheavals in the last, you know, 20 years, right? So I was sort of right on the cusp of when online journalism was becoming a thing. Um, I started out working at print newspapers and magazines and then transitioned into online. Um, and so I ended up um, specializing in food writing. I also had my own eating disorder history. So actually at the time that I was starting my career, I was really struggling with restriction and binging and, you know, really in it with um, with all that stuff. So I kind of became attracted to food as a beat to cover and um, ended up working at a, mag a food magazine called Gourmet that many people may know. Rest in peace. Um, 
So I was there until the end. They closed it in 2009 and I worked there for two and a half years um, as their online editor. And so as that was sort of, you know, there were rumblings that something was going to happen. There were going to be big layoffs or potentially folding the magazine. Right. So all this stuff was happening um, sort of in response to the financial crisis of 2008. And so I started to reflect on like what I wanted to do with my life potentially other than journalism because there was so much upheaval and change happening in that industry. And because of my history and, you know, with, I mean, as a food writer and sort of immersing myself in that world, I sort of cobbled together a recovery and I did eventually get therapy um, that really helped get at the underlying issues with my eating. But I was still, you know, somewhat disordered about food um, at the time when I started considering going back to school to become a dietitian. And I was covering food and nutrition. I was um, writing a lot about food politics. So I thought, you know, master's of public health nutrition might be an interesting path to go down and, you know, to help me write um, about, you know, systemic issues with the food system and maybe potentially work in policy. So I ended up working for the city department of health in nutrition policy as my first nutrition jobs. Um, and, you know, I decided I also wanted to get the RD to potentially do, um, individual counseling or just have the credential after my name to be an expert source and write books and stuff like that. I think you have a really unique perspective, especially coming from the journalism world. You know, you have to have something to write about, right? Um, I'm actually really curious, uh, while you were still in journalism, specifically food journalism, how did you find your stories? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would subscribe to news alerts about various topics. I would read voraciously, you know, just try to read everything that other people were writing about food. Um, and when I covered nutrition, this is the thing that's a little problematic about nutrition journalism that I always like to highlight, is when I covered nutrition, I would subscribe to these news briefs that were like, you know, new studies every day basically delivered into your inbox that had you know, just sort of absurd conclusions or headlines or, you know, some of them were very titillating, right? These studies that we see like chocolate, you know, gives you cancer or whatever, like the the completely um, off the wall things, you know, that was coming into my inbox every day. And I, you know, when I started out in journalism, I had no idea how to read a study or how to understand whether a study was um, valid or the results could be generalized to the population. And so, and, you know, some of my editors were a little more versed in that stuff than I was, but not by a whole lot, you know, like most people um, who are journalists don't go through a research methods um, program unless maybe they did a science journalism you know, program in school or something like that. But I mean, I wasn't really working in science journalism. A lot of the people I was working with had been in food their entire careers. Or, you know, I started out with um, working in an environmental magazine. And a lot of the folks there had been writing about, um, you know, science and the environment from a sort of um, techie perspective, but not, you know, not like health journalists, right? And so I never really learned how to determine what was a good um, study to report on or not. And I would just sort of say like, hey, this is interesting. You know, like, what do you guys think to my editors? And people would be like, oh, yeah, that's super cool. Like, write something up and let's post it, you know? Currently, I'm part of uh, Cision, which is a um, public relations platform for journalists and PR folks. And what that does is it connects you. So I am when I was podcasting about food, I was like, well, this is great because maybe I'll find some new sources 
right, um, as a quote, uh, technically not really a journalist, but as a quote unquote journalist with my podcast, right, um, I would get PR briefs from people with books for me to read or stories that they wanted to come on the show and talk about. And then I could just respond to whichever PR uh, press release um, came through and potentially have a new source. I'm still part of it, but now I just use it for the absurdity. Um, I get a slew of press releases in my inbox every single day, and all of them are problematic. Like, all of them. And it's one of the things that's really interesting to me about public relations and the way that it affects journalism, which then trickles down into the online world, which then trickles into the way that we talk to each other on our social platforms, which then trickles into the things that you have to coach people about, um, <laughs> is that there is, um, in public relations, it seems like there's kind of a an Ouroboros, like, snake-eating-its-tail thing, where it's like, well, because it's bikini body season, I have to write about bikini body season, so I'll tie my product thing, whatever, into bikini body season so that journalists will see bikini body season and know that this is a story that's relevant to them. And then they can then write about it, which then reinforces that bikini body season isn't even is even a thing. Right. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yes. Yeah. I saw that all the time, too. And because and, it was the same thing. I was subscribed to a lot of PR, um, you know, services. And then people would also like, um, public relations firms would discover that I was writing about a certain beat or I would meet them at an event or something like that. And so then I get on these lists for press releases for everything under the sun. And it was very much that it was sort of like, you know, and it was sometimes really um, far fetched stuff too, like, you know, this, the National Almond Day or whatever, you know, just like very silly things that no one would ever take seriously. But, but for something like bikini body season, it certainly is, you know, culturally reinforced. And when you see, because we would also like pay attention to what our competitors were up to. And when you see like, oh, you know, this magazine is doing a feature on this, right? Like that affects how you, you know, that, that might mean like, hey, we should do a feature on this, or we should at least be covering this. Um, because it's something that that people in this niche seem to want. Yeah. And that's, that's it right there. So, the crux of marketing psychology of public relations slash propaganda, because that is actually what public relations is, um, like from a uh, historical standpoint, um, is the focus is on, quote unquote, what people actually want. Right. So what happens is um, a, a journalist gets a story and is like, well, I don't know how I feel about bikini body season. Right. But they post it anyway. Right. And they get tons and tons of clicks. So that validates, oh, it must be that this is what people want. Oh, people want weight loss. People want miracle cures. People want, um, you know, moon juice and wellness. Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, they want it because they've been shown that they should want it. Right. And so they don't know any better. And from a psychology standpoint, yeah, if you show somebody something that's a miracle versus something that is like mildly interesting, they're going to click on the on the miracle. Right. That's how that's how clickbait works. Right. Um, they want the most extreme example. So as a as a journalist, as a public relations professional, as uh, even just an, an, uh, a blogger. Right. We have to make that decision day in, day out. Do I write the thing that's going to get more people to my stuff or do I write the thing that is maybe morally and ethically less reprehensible? 
Um, <laughs> you know, and instead we choose to go for the reprehensible stuff or the easy, low-hanging fruit or whatever you want to call it um, because it's quote-unquote what people want. But it's only what people want because we've already reinforced it culturally. So if it's not a part of the culture, then we don't need to want it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think anybody naturally wants weight loss. Like, there were not early homo sapiens worrying about their waistlines, right? There really weren't even people up until, you know, we're we're talking like, I don't know, probably within the last two centuries, that, that we're really talking about diets as a culture-wide thing, you know? And yes, like food itself, we can talk about all the problems systemically with food and, oh, yes, it's making people sick, blah, 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 big pharma, big ag, whatever. But like at its core, people don't want weight loss. People have been taught to want weight loss. Yeah, that's such a good point. It is it's it is that snake eating its tail thing, right? Of like, well, we have to write about weight loss because people want weight loss. Why do people want weight loss? It's because we're writing about weight loss. Like Exactly. Exactly. And it's cr- it's like it's crazy making. Yeah. It absolutely is. And it's one of the things that makes it very difficult then when you leave journalism or whatever and go and become your the the blogger that you are, the podcaster, to then create a business telling people that that's not what they want. So when women drop out to become coaches, and again, I'll talk about why they might want to do that in a future episode, they go where the money is, the path of least resistance. I chose to become a health coach because I was already obsessed with fitness and nutrition. I was paleo at the time after having been a vegan and a bodybuilder. I had a personal trainer certification, and I was thin, although I believed not lean and fit enough. Becoming a health coach, nutrition guru, personal trainer, or someone who works with bodies means being seen, especially on the internet. I had to be visibly lean and muscular to sell fitness to other people. I had to be visibly healthy, free from acne and traces of fat, cellulite, and other normal human things in order to convince people that I was the kind of person who could sell them a diet and a lifestyle that would optimize their health. People were, I believed, counting on me to visually represent what they wanted to become. I had to be consumable. My brand promise was the fodder that would replace the calories that they weren't eating. And I got trapped into the belief that I still had more work to do. Here's Suki again. It's an interesting line to walk as uh, a person who works, whether it's health coaching or weight loss coaching or, um, you know, in my, in my field, you know, posture, movement, that people look at your body a lot. And so that's another piece of the brand. When you go to my website, there's pictures of me on there. Um, and I, I definitely do have some discomfort with, uh, you know, it's, it's something I think about a lot is that, you know, why am I presenting myself in, in such a way, you know, down to like, what, what clothes am I wearing and why am I wearing these clothes? And, um, you know, how am I doing my hair and should I wear makeup? And, um, for me, I'm very tall. So, um, I work with people who are professionals and one thing I consider a lot is like, should I wear heels? 
And I, th- I think about this a lot because, you know, in, in my opinion, I don't like heels. They're not good for your feet. They're not good for your body. Um, I don't tell people they can't wear them, but they're kind of like dessert, you know, so you I don't like people wearing them all the time. But there's definitely, um, you know, if you go into a corporate space and you are a woman, I notice that that women who wear heels, you know, have an aura of power around them because it's a cultural thing, right? So, so I think that in the marketing of um, any body-centered thing, there can be some trouble with figuring out how to present yourself um, and how to be in integrity with your ideals while still, again, meeting the client where they're at and being in an acceptable place for them. And I think for, you know, if, if you're in the coaching field at all, and especially around weight loss, it is really a challenge because I think we've been taught, you know, um, I mean, I know I heard it a lot that you don't want to follow a coach who hasn't mastered the thing that you want to master. Right. So if you're trying to lose weight, you don't want to follow a coach who's overweight like that. I've heard that Mm -hmm. so many times. Um, and so, and, and it, it makes logical sense, but it also doesn't make sense. So it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think it's one that if, we are marketing in a health or body centered field, we need to be really intentional. So I may wear makeup and get my eyebrows done. And I know why I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing it because it allows me access to people who are in spaces where I see a need for the kind of work that I'm doing. And I see that the greater benefit is that I'm getting into those spaces and doing the work and that it will have ripple effects. You know, it'll, if I, if I can work with an entrepreneur or an executive and get him in a more regulated space or her in a more regulated space, then the people around that person are going to also feel the benefits. They're going to have a safer, more trustworthy leader. It's going to make our workspaces less toxic. So can I, can I get my hair done and my eyebrows and put on some makeup and buy some fancy clothes for that? Yeah, I I can make that compromise, but I'm doing it intentionally, right? I'm not just doing it sort of unconsciously, not knowing how I'm playing into the culture. Unlike Suki, I was not making intentional compromises in my marketing. I was marketing what I thought people wanted, what I thought I wanted, perhaps what you think you want too. You know, if I were to ask you what you think of when you think of a popular Instagram influencer or blogger or health coach, what does that person look like? All right, so I can't hear you talking back to me over your car radio or your AirPods, so I'll answer for you. It's a she, and she is femme. Maybe blonde, but definitely put together. She gets her hair done, her nails done, her to-do list done, her life done. Even when she posts a no-makeup selfie, she still looks like she's stepped out of a magazine. Her skin is flawless because of the supplements she takes or the oil cleansing regimen she just started or the brand of natural face cream she's repping. If she has children, she's the perfect mother. If she has a partner, always a husband, she gives him a cute name like Mr. Oatmeal or Mr. Skinny Bitch. He takes the pictures for her and sometimes helps her with her yoga poses. And she is fit or thin or lean or toned, depending on what her brand tells you that she must be. She's flexible but strong. She did it through progress, not perfection. But come to think of it, you've only really seen the perfection. She is aspiration embodied, and her body is a commodity that you can buy if only you sign up for her next coaching series or purchase the exclusive supplement line that she's affiliated with. 
With a body like hers, your life could be just as beautiful as the one she shows you. You could be thin, toned, and empowered. And, you know, weight loss is often sold as empowerment. And um, that makes me want to rip my eyebrows out when I hear that. Because it's, you know, dieting to lose weight is probably one of the most disempowering things that you can do. And so when I see women specifically selling to other women, you know, empowerment, which is sidebar, like one of the fluffiest words these days, because empowerment has sort of become something that you just sell tickets to. It's really meaningless. Um, <laughs> um, uh, when I see that, I'm just like, this is not empowering. It isn't. When you hand over the keys to your body and your life to someone else to tell you what to eat and what to do and how to spend your time trying to shrink yourself, you lose your power. It's not empowering at all. And um, yeah, I want people to realize that. And you know, I started to think about this when I saw a Someone who is pretty well known in the internet space, who's like a money mindset coach selling weight loss. And, you know, she in her regular business talks about financial empowerment and empowering women, but then turns around and and sell something that is not empowering at all. And um, I've seen that in the past month. I've seen that three times from three different people. Let's jump back to our conversation with Christy Harrison. I was actually targeted with an ad on Instagram the other day that I posted on Facebook. I have a um, an album on Facebook of terrible marketing pitches, um, which I just screenshot basically everything that I get from Cision and Instagram and Facebook every day. Um, but one of one of the screen caps that I took was this ad on Instagram for a woman who is pretty clearly a beach body coach. Um, but Beachbody has a very specific uh, marketing plan that they give to their people. So, but this person was targeting me, and in all caps, uh, she was highlighting that she was looking for women who were driven and wanted to live on their own terms so that they could be better mothers and wives and, um, you know, be able to uh, still have time for their family while they're working. Like this was the message that she was. And so the entire uh, sales pitch was, which, you know, yes, you should be able to uh, have work life balance, I think, is a good message. But the way that she pitched it was not work life balance. It's you can you can still make money, but you're a great mom and a great wife. You are going to live up to all of the heteronormative ideals while also having, quote unquote, your own terms. Right. Um and the the pitch was for you to become a beach body coach of course because you know um now it doesn't say that but because beach body coaches never put that they do beach body on their profiles they just say sign up for my next cycle of coaching um yeah it's it's very deceptive marketing it drives me up a wall um the the point is your marketing is not saying by doing this you will reach the hetero norm right Right. And it's yes, it is targeted probably more towards people who uh, identify as femme. Right. Mm -hmm. um, probably people who are cisgender women um, might resonate with your message specifically because that is who you are and that is the experience that you have. Right. Um, doesn't mean that you cannot work with people who are outside of that. But your your 
marketing is an activism. You have to pick a niche, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like this is a, a thing that I am constantly saying. You do have to pick a niche. And unfortunately, niching is not inclusive, even though you are inclusive in the voices that you center on your podcast. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I will say of your marketing, it is not it doesn't reach that scary sort of um, cis heteronormative white uh, aspiration, mm. if you will, because I think that's what happens in the body image world. It's like, you know, there is a coach that I used to highly respect um, who's gone from coaching about body image to coaching about regaining your femininity. Mm, right. And it's all about, you know, and there's nothing wrong with identifying as femme and embracing those femme qualities, if that is a thing that appeals to you. Sure. It's just that the the language of it tends towards the cis-heteronormative, tends towards the um, disempowering under the guise of empowerment. Right. right? It tends toward um, relieving you of your duties of taking control of your own destiny and just like, well, as long as you can perform this, you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, anyway, sorry, that's a, a, a tangent, but, um, no, that's so important and interesting. I think because you like what you're saying that the aspirational thing, right. It's the, the mm -hmm. female lifestyle and power brand is sort of, yes. um, which is, uh, Kelly deals term for this sort of type of marketing, right. That's like mm -hmm. centering white, cis, able-bodied, heterosexual, usually young, um, women and, you know, showing this aspirational life that people want, you know, sort of people are told they should want to attain at least. Um, and then saying that you can have this too, if you do my coaching program or if you buy my product or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. yeah, that is so problematic and just so not me that I think that has been a consistent thing that I've had to just listen to my intuition about of like, where is, you know, where am I getting pressure to be aspirational and like sell something that I don't even believe in really, you know, like mm -hmm. that work is not about that, right? Work is a, is a separate sphere that can, you know, support a family for sure, but not mm -hmm. like it just, yeah, it's sort of like gaslighting almost to say like, you know, you can live life on your own terms and be empowered in order to, right, perform mm -hmm. this role that women have been forced into for millennia. And it's only, right. you know, in the last century or so that we've had some options outside of that, right? Right. And, you know, and that is how we sell diets, because mm -hmm. if if you accept that the role of uh, a woman, you know, obviously I say woman and there's so much baggage attached to that word, but let's just talk in general terms, mm -hmm. right? The role of uh, a cisgender heterosexual woman is to be a wife, to be a mother, and to also embody, it, it's like to embody uh you know, youth and sex and um, desirability, mm -hmm. um, objectification, right. and also to embody mother and home and, you know, uh, the sense of like Puritan values, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and there's a huge, I mean, it's part, this is why dieting is a thing because it's like, okay, if you are intended to, have to you know embody all of these things well you have to look a certain way you have to be desirable and again this is an Ouroboros situation mm -hmm. the snake eating its own tail where it's like well right but why do you have to do that we just it's just because we've been told that not because we 
came up with this concept organically. Right. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's all about, like, trying to control your body so that you can be consumed. Right. Right. In a way that is pleasurable for, you know, ostensibly a cisgender heterosexual male. Um, right. And, of course, then that language has now trickled into uh, non-heteronormative relationships. I know, you know, there's a huge pressure for gay men to uh, have their bodies look a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's huge, um, there's huge pressure on everyone um, in order to avoid being harassed, um, misgendered, um, you know, you know, had having violence committed against them to look a certain way as well. Right. Um, you know, and so it's just like it, that that language of like, you know, cisgender women must look a certain way has trickled into everything. Totally. <laughs> you know, and as marketers, it's so easy to take that and say, well, because it is this way, let me help you feel better by doing this, right. you know, and I'll, I'll have you do it in a way that feels more palatable to you, right? We'll call it body positivity. We'll call it empowerment. We'll call it this, that, and the other thing to make you feel like doing this is giving you something that you want or need. Mm-hmm. But in reality, when you perform this, no matter what, you are doing something that is perpetuating violence against your own body. Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's like the people who say intuitive eating is a way to have the weight just effortlessly fall off, you know, right? Like intuitive eating is about rejecting the diet mentality, about accepting your body wherever it lands. And oftentimes, if you've been dieting and restricting, that's going to be at a higher weight than you started out with. You know, some Mm -hmm. people might lose weight, some people gain weight, some people stay the same. But like, you know, people who market themselves as intuitive eating coaches who help you lose weight in a, quote, healthy, gradual way or whatever, mm-hmm. just drive me up a wall because <laughs> it's it's completely misunderstanding what intuitive eating is. And it's almost like, did you even read the book? Because it's in the book. Like, if you read the book, mm-hmm. you would know this is it's not about achieving a certain body size, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But... <sighs> You know, from a marketing perspective, from a PR perspective, because the snake has eaten its own tail (laughs) for so long, it's very hard to convince people that that is not correct. Right. And that's not (laughs) something they should want. And one more jump back to our conversation with Melissa Toller. It's so interesting because I I think we both kind of came to this conclusion on like in, in, in weird opposite bubbles of the world. But the idea of dieting being violence against the the body mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and so i want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what your thoughts are there yeah so this um this kind of goes back to that voice that um i always heard that was deep inside of me that said this is not right this can't be <laughs> this can't be it this doesn't make sense that i'm always trying to eat less to weigh less <clears throat> mm-hmm. and so in late 2015 i read a post written by Rachel Cole. And it was just simply titled dieting is a violent act. And when I tell you, I was like that whole it that post just clicked and confirmed everything that that little voice inside of me had been saying. And she just laid it out how dieting is physically violent, emotionally violent, mentally violent. And 
If you've ever been on a diet or done something to intentionally lose weight, you can relate to that. And dieting is really, it's, it encourages us to go against ourselves on a regular basis. It encourages us to hate our bodies as they are mm-hmm. and fix them. It encourages us to eat less, even if we want more. It encourages us to work out harder and go into quote unquote beast mode, even <laughs> when we are sick or tired or injured. Mm-hmm. It is violence. And, and I, this is how powerful diet culture is. And even when, so I read that. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been thinking. And she just put it into words. But then I was like, well, is violence too strong of a word? Maybe that's maybe that's too much. And 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 then I realized that's how insidious diet culture is. Right. Mm -hmm. It, It has you thinking, well, it's not that bad. And. And you think that because it's everywhere. Like, so it can't be that bad because everyone else is doing it. And and so that's, that was my thought process over. And now I am convinced that it is a violent thing. It just is. I mean, to you, we live in here in America in a culture where food is prevalent. We have a lot of food, but then we intentionally don't eat what we want. I mean, just it's 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 a very violent process and and for me as a black woman it it you know the i there's so many things in this culture that tell me that i'm not okay and this is one of them and um i cannot participate in that i just don't, now that i know what i know i cannot participate in that it is not healthy and you know then that's Despite what people say about the health and wellness industry, it's really not about health or wellness. It is about <laughs> selling stuff yeah. to help you lose weight. And wellness is not directed, it, it, it's only directed towards certain people. It's as if certain people, if you can't afford it, you look a certain way, you don't deserve to be well. So it's, it's, it's very, the whole community to me is very empty and um, manipulative and individualistic. There's like no conversation around access to health care, health insurance, food. All I mean, I could go on and on about that. That's been something that's been burning a hole in my <laughs> rear end. Yeah. Well, it, please feel free. Feel free. This is this is your space. <laughs> yeah, just you know, it's not healthy for me to go against myself. It's not healthy for me to think there's something wrong with me all the time. None of that is healthy, but it's, it's sold to me. It's sold to us as healthy. It's not healthy to think that I'm somehow superior to people who, who aren't or can't get as lean as I can get. Like that Mm -hmm. just is, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but that is what health and wellness has become. It's become about green juice, detoxing yoga on a mountaintop, and it's all directed toward young white women, right? Yeah. It just is. Like, that is what health and wellness is about. And let me just tell you what it just really became clear. Um, you know, here in America, the <clears throat> House of Representatives voted for the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. And 
there's a potential for millions of Americans to lose their health insurance. So do you think that any of these health and wellness gurus, leaders, or advocates, or whatever they call themselves, the same people who were in an uproar about the sugar content of that unicorn frappuccino <laughs> didn't say jack shit about, mm-hmm. about health, the health insurance situation. So it's very clear that they have a, a narrow view of what health and wellness actually means and who should benefit from it. So it just, I don't, that's why I struggle with using the term health and wellness coach, even though that is an official term that I got certified for. I don't want to be associated with the state of the health and wellness community as it is now. I a hundred percent agree. I stopped calling myself a health coach a long time ago for that specific reason. It's like, well, nobody knows how to find me now. Great. (laughs) Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's very clear that even when people, you know, like there are some wonderful people in the health and wellness community who have helped people get healthy, right? Who are dealing with like specific things that are very bad for your health, whatever, and they're they're motivating people and inspiring them or whatever. But at the same time, you know, when you say that it's empty and manipulative and individualistic, you're right. Because at the end of the day, it's about generating more wealth from somebody else's fear of being broken. Yes. Um, you know, I left the paleo world when I saw that happening um, because I would look at my friends who, you know, we get. OK, so the the way that I saw it. Right. OK, so you get started in paleo because you saw, you know, somebody with a six pack. Right. Um, it's usually a, a white woman who does CrossFit or a white man who does CrossFit, you know, or they don't call it CrossFit. They do like body weight exercises and sprints or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And you see this image of the six pack. And actually, I can tell you um, uh, if you're familiar with Abel James at all. Um, but I remember a couple of years ago, he wrote a blog post about how he had written an article about health and he had A, B tested the article. And one version of the article he put on social media had a picture of him with a six-pack. And the other version had a picture of Kale. And guess which one got clicked more? His six-pack? Heck yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so what happens is they market, they market like eating a little bit better or like even the people who are into sustainability and stuff, they market it as weight loss or they market it as muscles so that they can get you in because culture is already put that voice in yep. your head, yep. right? That you're something, there's something wrong with you. So you just get in and you're like, oh, okay, I'll just like maybe eat a little bit less bread and like mm-hmm. maybe eat a little more veggies. But by the end of it, I mean, I look at the the panels at Paleo FX this year and I'm like, I'm ready to cry because it's like, we get down to this point where it's like you have to continue to convince people that they are broken, yeah. that they're not. So they get so they get you from like eat a little bit less bread and a little bit more veggies to like now you're taking supplements to detox parasites that might be in your toenail or something like that. You know what I mean? Yes. And it's all and it's all sold with a six pack. Yes. And it's all sold with a white six pack. It's yep. it is so it blows my mind that we can't see it. Yes. Yeah, we can't see it. It's really difficult to see that there's something wrong with that because we're surrounded by it because we've been surrounded by it for our entire lives. 
So it's, yeah. you have to, I mean, yeah, it, it's almost impossible to withdraw from that because you don't see it as a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so like when somebody like, you know, you or I comes up and says, hey, that thing you're doing, it's a little bad. Same way, same thing with the, the fitness stuff, right? The bodybuilding stuff. When somebody says like, yeah, maybe, you know, selling weight loss, maybe not such a good thing. People are like, <gasps> how dare you? How dare you take that away from me when this is this is my calling? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? oh. how, how dare you take that away from me when I'm helping millions of people to feel better about themselves? When in reality, are you? Are you no. really helping them feel better about themselves? Or are you helping them feel superior while they're in the middle of hating themselves? Yeah. Right? Yep. It's kind of like a, a salve to... Uh, you know, cool the burn of, of that self-hatred, um, you know, because at the end of the day, I hate myself so much that I've made myself better. How did we get here? How did self-hate turn into a message of empowerment? I interviewed Andy Zeisler, editor of Bitch Magazine and author of We Were Feminist Once, from Riot Girl to Cover Girl, because I thought if anyone had the answers, she would. There's an amazing um, writer named Susan J. Douglas, who has a number of books on uh, sort of culture, and she's sort of been uh, like a mentor of mine. And one of the things she's written about is... Uh, in this, in a book she wrote called, uh, where the girls are. And it was, you know, sort of about growing up with, uh, popular culture geared toward women sort of as the ambient, uh, white noise of her life. And one of the things she talked, uh, the kind of sort of post pre feminist backlash years of sort of like the late seventies, and this idea that um, a kind of narcissism began to stand in for feminism because the narrative was that, you know, for, uh, you know, at least white middle class, somewhat educated women, uh, the feminist movement had really achieved so many of its goals. You know, it had, it had secured the uh, legal abortion. It had secured, um, you know, things like the Equal Credit Act. It had... Um, secured a lot more protections in the workplace. Um, so there was this idea that feminism had really, uh, really done a lot of what it was, what people had hoped it would do. And so there came in the aftermath kind of this much more consumerist focus on, well, now that you're liberated, what are you going to do with that? And, um, you know, so we had like the Jane Fonda workout where, you know, this former anti-war feminist leaning activist was like, you know, feel the burn because your body is the next frontier of liberation. Um, so, and you know, that was very, that was very true of the eighties as a whole in the sense of it, you know, was the decade where people really took a breath after, uh, you know, the, the post-civil rights, post-gay liberation, uh, post-second wave movement, and people began to be really into themselves and began to, uh, you know, concentrate on, on what felt good to them and, you know, sort of rationalized it as, well, you know, we worked hard, we, you know, we marched, we suffered, we, you know, hunger striked. 
Um, this is our time. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't trace all of it to that, but I do think that that put in place this mindset where it became very easy to conflate um, of social movements with personal power. You know, I, I look at all this and I, one of the things that happened to me, and I see this happening to a lot of the women who became my clients or listened to my previous podcast, uh, which was all about eating disorder recovery, uh, even for people who didn't have eating disorders, but had all of the behaviors. Um, there is a sense of accomplishment and of righteousness and of, um, I guess, it, I guess, empowerment, if that's the word I have to use, um, by controlling your body. Um and being able to gain cultural capital as a result. You know, I personally had a family member who never had a nice thing to say about me tell me when I was, you know, under 100 pounds that I finally looked good. And that was the first compliment she'd ever given me. Um, you know, mm. I started gain. you know, my, my very first boyfriend happened the same summer that I became an anorexic. And so I see this happening. It's being taught now to people who don't have eating disorders. Um as, uh, you know, you look at the Beachbody coaches and Isogenics and Advocare and all of the MLM companies and all of the, the diets and the fitness, I mean, CrossFit, it's all about um, masculinizing your body in a lot of ways um, or ultra-feminizing your body. There's kind of like that two, and I, I use those binary words knowing that, that they're kind of bullshit descriptors, but um, just for the sake of conversation, Um you know, it, there's the sense that either strong is the new skinny or um, healthy is the new skinny. And both of these things are constantly about making choices to change your body and and bring that focus completely narcissistically inward to optimize and change so that you can then present yourself to the world um, for some sort of cultural, you know, exchange of cultural or financial capital. Right. One of the places where it's really hard to sort of parse all of this stuff about, you know, empowerment and liberation and, uh, you know, individual success versus collective success really is um, the body and particularly for women because, you know, so much of our socialization has really been tied up in our bodies and um, our bodies have been equated with our value, our worth, our ability to love and be loved, our ability to be seen. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a really hard place. And I, I feel like that's one of the hugest sort of sites of uh, people having these kind of crises about whether they um, can truly uh, act in a feminist way if they sort of buy into so much of anti-feminist rhetoric um, when it comes to themselves. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> I struggle with it too. I'm doing a sugar detox right now and I want to like face plant into a vat of ice cream. Um, but I also am like, oh my God, I'm like, you know, filming this segment of a documentary next week. And I hope I don't like, I hope my face looks thinner. You know what I mean? Like we all do this. Um, and it is, it does feel like, uh, in a feminist world that wouldn't happen, but I kind of wonder. 
I wonder too. I wonder what a feminist world would look like. One where we didn't have to constantly think about how our looks impact our ability to sell. One where feminist experts don't have to think about what their bodies communicate to others. One where we don't have to sell each other diets and thinness and over-exercise under the guise of empowerment. But I suppose before we begin imagining that world, we have to start by understanding why we're looking for empowerment in the first place. Today's episode was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. And thank you to the Silicon Valley chapter of Shut Up and Write for hours and hours and hours of quiet and sometimes loud companionship and for listening to me talk about this podcast for the last year and a half. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and to help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. Patrons who pledge $5 a month or more will get exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer, previously unreleased interviews. Just visit patreon.com slash bodybrandpod. For show notes and links to guests on today's episode, please visit bodybrandpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a health coach, yoga teacher, personal trainer, or wellness entrepreneur? Have you considered becoming one? I'd love to hear your story and potentially share it on a future podcast. Or do you have a question? Well, you can send me a text email, or better yet, record a voice memo and email it to yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on Twitter at BodyBrandPod. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.